Hello and welcome to Queer as Fiction, where we discuss queer historical media. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Jason. And today we're talking about modern depictions of Achilles and Patroclus. We have some content warnings before we start this episode. We'll be discussing war and war-related death, grief, violence, and PTSD as depicted in the media that we're discussing. We're also going to be discussing sexual slavery, both in a war context and not, and the way that those relationships are romanticized in media. Somewhat on that note, we will also be discussing modern homophobia and misogyny. If any of that sounds like something that you don't want to listen to, please feel free to skip this one and listen to any of our other episodes. A couple of episodes ago, we discussed the mythological figures Achilles and Patroclus and their depiction in ancient texts, most notably in Homer's Iliad. I don't want to recap that episode too thoroughly, so if that sounds interesting to you, I suggest you just go and listen to that episode. But I will say a few things as necessary background. Achilles and Patroclus are heroes of the Trojan War, a brief episode of which is depicted in the Iliad. Although there is genuinely some ambiguity as to the exact nature of their relationship in the Iliad, Their relationship is very intense and very important to the plot, character arcs, and emotional heart of that poem. What is not ambiguous is how their relationship is understood in the later Greek texts we discussed. So we discussed Aeschylus' play The Myrmidons, which survives only in fragments, Phaedrus' speech in Plato's Symposium, and Aeschylus' courtroom speech against Timarchus, all of which depict Achilles and Patroclus in a sexual and romantic relationship. As we discussed in our earlier episode, those works do understand their relationship in a way that is anachronistic to the Iliad, but we nevertheless thought it was important to note that this reading is a very old and integral part of the evolution of the myth, and one that you can't really get away from if you're talking about them today. Speaking of the evolution of this myth, we also spent quite a bit of time talking about how, although people generally appeal to Homer when discussing whether Achilles and Patroclus were really lovers... There is no true one canonical version of the myths in which they feature, and we would be doing them a disservice to understand Homer's Iliad as the real story, and every following version as accurate or inaccurate based on how it compares to that. I bring this up because it's very easy to find articles and people talking about how modern adaptations aren't any good because they're not accurate, and these articles are generally quite nitpicky and lazy, and I wanted to note this specifically so we don't do that sort of thing ourselves. It's inevitable and I think desirable when adapting these myths into new mediums and for like very different cultures than the original one that heard this myth to make changes just as it's necessary to honor the source materials while doing so. So we're going to comment on differences here, but the conversation will be more like, why did those changes get made and do we think it works? As opposed to just being like, well, in the Iliad... So with that background out of the way, we're going to talk about Wolfgang Peterson's 2004 movie Troy, Madeline Miller's 2011 novel The Song of Achilles, and the 2018 BBC miniseries Troy Fall of a City. I think you've ranked these in the order of like worst to best in my opinion, but okay, you know, others may disagree. (laughs) That was not why I decided to order them in that way. I just thought we'd go chronologically, but that's fine. I mean, now that you say that you did it chronologically and I also view that as worst to best, that makes me feel positive that maybe like an even better adaptation that I genuinely think is good is coming. To maybe. be clear, I don't love any of these pieces of media. Specifically, specifically in seven years. Or like, no, sorry, in five years. Because they've come out every seven years. Oh, have they? 2004, 2011, 2018. Huh, cool. Okay, nice. So in 2025, we'll be watching an amazing adaptation of <laughs> the Trojan War myths that we will love. Anyway... <laughs> 
So we're going to begin with the 2004 Troy movie. The film Troy was directed by Wolfgang Peterson and stars Brad Pitt as Achilles, which is a very 2004 thing to happen. (laughs) (laughs) It was written by then relative newcomer David Benioff, which explains why it's a bit of a dry run for Game of Thrones. Um, I feel like that sums up its vibe. I was going to tell you some fun facts about this movie, but then I decided that they weren't that fun and I cut them all. But I'm going to, I kept one which I tell you solely because it might make you upset as an Australian. That's not a fun <laughs> fact, then. No, it's not. So all of the actors in this were told to just speak in their own accents, mm-hmm. with the exception of Eric Banner and Rose Byrne, the two Australian actors who were told that they had to get rid of their accents for the film. <laughs> and I think that's disgusting. <laughs> Screw you, Wolfgang Peterson. Yeah. I have no problem with people being like, okay, you have to change accents because it doesn't sound like a fantasy or like a... I have a problem with Whatever that. Whatever accent. I have a problem with that. Name. I mean, like, there's some stuff to say about that. But if you're doing that because you want all your actors to have a consistent accent, mm. okay. But if you just hate the way Australians talk, yeah. that's not acceptable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Garrett Hedlund's obvious American accent is fine, but Eric Banner's Australian <laughs> accent is absolutely illegal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think in recompense, the 2025 Troy movie, Should be like ochre as hell. <laughs> the, the Trojans are all Australian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good. I like it. Yeah. The film was commercially quite successful, but it received mixed reviews, uh, which is frankly more than it deserves because it's a bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to watch this movie just like, you know, throughout my life, not specifically yeah. for this podcast. I've tried to watch this movie like three or four times. I've sat down in front of this film. I've got like 20 minutes in and I've been like, I just can't do it. And I've left. So that's where I'm at with this movie. <laughs> okay. Jason, do you want to um, disagree and say it's a good movie? Uh, no. I will say that like, I don't think it's the worst movie. Like certainly... I watched this movie as a kid when it came out, had no real problems with it, thought it had some fun fight scenes, some cool choreography, some big actors doing fun things and having fun. I didn't really mind it. And, you know, obviously now watching it, I think it has some quite severe problems, Mm. both as a movie and also as an adaptation. I would certainly agree that it's the worst of the three adaptations that we're going to talk about today. But then again, this is the podcast Queer as Fact, and it's not queer so i would say that so on a like slightly more neutral note i did want to note that the film shortens the time scale of the war considerably so it depicts helen's elopement with paris the greeks going off to war and then it kind of like immediately launches into the plot of the iliad Despite that, I felt like it managed to still keep it feeling like it was on a pretty epic scale. I guess mostly because it's got a pretty high budget. So I felt like they carried that choice off pretty well. I also wanted to note that it decided to do away with anything supernatural because in the words of its director, who could possibly portray a god without looking ridiculous? Yeah, which is interesting. But the biggest problem, at least for our purposes, is how they deal with Achilles' sexuality. Yep. In a 2019 article for Vanity Fair, the director Wolfgang Peterson was quoted on the possibility of depicting a queer relationship between Achilles and Patroclus. He said, it never came up. Nowadays, it would be a different time and a different situation, but then it was not even a discussion. Um, So first of all, I would just like to notice that I am very skeptical that if Wolfgang Peterson made that movie this year, it would actually be handled any differently. Yeah, no, it wouldn't. Uh, Like, sure. Sure, it would, guy. But yeah, in any case, as that makes clear, Achilles and Patroclus are not gay in Troy. The fact that he heavily implies that Achilles and Patroclus being gay is an invention of the last, like, ten years is just insane. I, I don't think that's what that is implying. I think he's saying that, like, oh, we've moved on enough now that you could portray them being gay in a movie like that, but we just couldn't have done it in 2004. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not that they just didn't make them explicitly gay. They also, like 
pretty explicitly preclude the possibility by yeah. having Patroclus be Achilles' cousin. Yeah, and like so his baby cousin too. I yeah. think I think if they made that today, they'd say that like, yeah, we're making we're making this whole like Iliad movie, and we, it's really important to us to like represent the LGBT community. So we're gonna have like a an you know explicitly gay moment, and then like in the background, two Trojan men would hold hands for a second, and it would get cut for like release in Russia or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is unfortunately true but yeah as you've said they had to decide given that they're not going to be gay how to adapt this relationship instead the plot demands a relationship that is close enough to explain achilles extreme grief and decision to return to battle um you know this is a relationship that matters more than his own honor to him and so they make patroclus into achilles much younger cousin their dynamic is first established in the scene in which they introduced in which achilles is teaching patroclus how to sword fight <laughs> and we're told that patroclus's parents are dead and achilles is watching over him and patroclus is referred to as his cousin three times in 90 seconds <laughs> I like that you timed this. I did time it. I was well. I was watching it, and they were just like cousin, 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 and I was like, that was excessive. Let me be petty. <laughs> that's very deliberate at that point, and that's going so far beyond what you needed to like. You know, obviously, I think that this relationship should be depicted as being gay. But, like, if you're not going to do that, I don't think that you needed to have them say the word cousin three times in 90 seconds. I don't know. It still seems excessive. <laughs> yeah, um, even if you're just doing, like, poor writing where, like, how will I let them know they're cousins? You only need to do it once. Yeah. Unless you really want to hammer at home that it's not gay. I wanted to pause on the cousins for a moment, actually, because saying, but they're cousins is something that people use a lot to say. So stop saying they're gay. They can't have been gay. It's because they're cousins. Not even regarding Troy in particular, but just about them in general. And this actually includes a professor of mine at university who responded to an email in my like second year, I think, of me saying, hey, I want to write the essay on the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus with, okay, you can do it, but remember they're cousins. <laughs> so it's not something that is just like in the mainstream because of Troy. So I just wanted to to kind of like debunk this as it were. There actually is an obscure historical tradition that they're cousins. Eustathius in his 12th century commentary on the Iliad tells us that, quote, one should know that ancient history records that Patroclus was also a relative of Achilles, since it states that Hesiod says that Patroclus's father Minoitius was Peleus's brother, so that accordingly they were each other's first cousins. Hesiod is like a near contemporary of Homer's, just for reference. So although this does appear in ancient sources, apparently, this tradition obviously does not become widespread. In any case, it's not specified by Homer, so it's only as legitimate as the idea that they're gay anyway, and the motivation for choosing that extrapolation of their relationship over them being queer is fairly obvious. Mm -hmm. So stop telling me they're actually cousins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Patroclus's extreme social and martial inferiority continues once they arrive at Troy. When they get there, Achilles refuses to let Patroclus fight, having him instead guard the ship, telling him, you're a good student, but you're not a Myrmidon yet. Cousin, I can't fight the Trojans if I'm concerned for you. Cousin. Guard the ship. He again makes a point of referring to him as cousin. <laughs> Such is Patroclus's demotion that when he fights Hector, it kind of seems like this might be the first time that Patroclus has like ever fought anyone who isn't Achilles' practice. And once he dies, Odysseus makes a point of turning to the onlookers and saying, it was his cousin. <laughs> I will have a lot more to say about this in Song of Achilles, because I feel like this is the, the major theme of our probably general dislike of Song of Achilles. But <laughs> the thing where... They just cannot accept making Patroclus and Achilles equals 
or not even like necessarily equals because obviously Achilles is supposed to be like the best soldier Greece has but like adaptations are just really uncomfortable for some reason with making Patroclus a competent soldier and like adult man what's up with that yeah I, I, yeah, I guess we will return to that in some yeah. Achilles because yeah. I think that there are like different <laughs> motivations there than here so by making them cousins the writer not only makes it definitively not gay but also I think clearly feels that that should be sufficient context for the audience in conveying why Achilles reacts the way he does and therefore why the plot goes the way it does etc therefore the movie doesn't really feel like it needs to actually show much of their relationship or Patroclus's character or anything like that at all and it's just a waste of their characters and the relationship and it sucks yeah and I mean Patroclus gets like basically no dialogue yeah and what dialogue he does have is completely uninteresting he doesn't have a character Mm -hmm. beyond just being kind of young and somewhat naive it's very disappointing especially because I do feel like Brad Pitt has a couple of scenes as Achilles where he does show quite a bit of emotion and where he you know does channel a version of Achilles that is interesting but then because he doesn't have this actual developed relationship with Patroclus regardless of whether or not he's his cousin or his lover it doesn't really go anywhere Mm. because he has no one else to bounce off because Achilles well, is close to any other any of the other combatants which yeah. I feel you know given that most of his scenes are combat scenes yeah well I actually did want to to mention an incredibly minor character in the Iliad that they developed somewhat <laughs> in this version just kind of in order to fill the space that had been vacated by like canon Patroclus mm. which is this guy Eudorus mm. who is like Achilles second in command maybe he's like one of his soldiers and, like, whenever they need Achilles to be talking to, like, an adult man who is, like, one of his soldiers, they put Eudorus in there. Mm. And it was kind of as such that I felt like it got a little homoerotic. I remember we were saying this, like, as we watched the film. Yeah. yeah. I just, yeah, I wanted to note that character existing because I felt like that he clearly is there because Patroclus can't be. And I just thought that was silly. <laughs> but I did kind of want a version where at the end where he gets shot in the heel, Eudorus, like, swings in on a rope. I don't know. I feel like he looks a bit like a pirate. And <laughs> saves him and then they kiss I don't know this was a 2025 version no no it won't (laughs) that would be a step backwards it would be a step it would be a step somewhere somewhere. it would be a step out onto a a rope on a a gangplank kiss their pirates (laughs) (laughs) anyway Like, he has this whole bit where he's like, it's been an honor serving you, my lord. And he just looks so, like, he's acting so hard. And I'm Mm. like, oh, kiss him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, kiss him, boy. Yeah. It's funny as well, because, like, the Iliad has just, like, a crazy amount of characters. Like, so many characters. and Too many, frankly. (laughs) So many. God, Homer. (laughs) In, like, a film adaptation or something like that, you would expect to see them conflate a bunch of, like, smaller characters into like one character and instead they've been forced to like split Patroclus's role into two characters because they're just that determined not to make it gay and yeah like... that's true anyway another way they divert us from Patroclus is with Achilles intense heterosexuality <laughs> uh, so the first time we see him he is in bed with not one but two women but the major way this is done is with the increased importance given to Briseis so in the Iliad Briseis is Achilles war prize and kind of important as a plot point but absolutely not as a character she's functionally just treated as an object by the narrative so I have problems with how all three of these adaptations deal with Briseis to some extent, but the one that I hate the most is this one. So I'm going to say the most about her here, and I'm sure we'll come back to it. So in this version, Briseis is fleshed out from being this rather small role into being Achilles' main love interest. And to be clear, I don't object to Briseis being fleshed out. I think it's a necessary part of a modern adaptation. 
However, the sexual violence that is done to Briseis and to all of the women like her is at the core of her role in the narrative. And so a modern adaptation faces the problem of how to deal with this rape culture that their story is set in and which the heroes of the story take part in. And the response of this film, and I think to some extent all of the examples, is just to distance the good guys from it Mm -hmm. and exaggerate the villains, such as Agamemnon's, interaction with it. And they're therefore able to make this fairly like shallow condemnation of rape whilst absolving Achilles and therefore not actually really having to interact with it at all. And so through doing that, this movie is able to pretend that it's totally fine for Achilles to sleep with Briseis, even though she can't meaningfully consent to that in any way, and have scenes where like she holds a knife at his throat and he overpowers her. And then they have a passionate sex scene. The development of their relationship in that film is just so uncomfortable in that, like, there really isn't a development of their relationship. Mm. Like, you just described the development of their relationship in that one sentence, basically. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in the same way that because Patroclus is depicted as Achilles' cousin, we are therefore not expected to need any additional development of that relationship for mm. Achilles to completely lose it upon Patroclus' death. Yeah. In the same way, Briseis and Achilles' relationship is not developed because you're just expected to accept that when a woman sees Brad Pitt, she's just going to fall for him and they're going to be passionately in love. Yeah, and like this is a common problem that we see in so many movies where it's just like, oh, that's the main female character. We don't need to work on the romantic relationship because that's the female character. So I don't really have that much more to say about that. It's just, it's in this movie and it's very uncomfortable to watch and I hate it. So the last thing I wanted to talk about regarding the movie Troy is how despite playing down the relationship with Patroclus quite a bit and playing up the relationship with Briseis, the film still can't quite escape the echoes of another gayer (laughs) version. After Patroclus' death, Achilles decides to kill Hector in revenge, and Briseis begs him not to. When faced with the choice of which relationship to honour, he doesn't hesitate for a moment. In the emotional climax of the film, he's presented with a choice between Briseis and Patroclus, and he immediately chooses Patroclus and rides off in his chariot (laughs) without a second thought. Mm. Which isn't, like, inherently gay, but I just thought that, like, it was interesting that no matter how much they were like, no, 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 Briseis is here now. Don't pay attention to Patroclus. They couldn't help making it clear that that relationship was the one of primary importance to the character. I guess the thing is, like, if you're adapting the Iliad, it's so fundamentally about a relationship between Achilles and Patroclus that no matter what other stuff you put around the edges, you would be telling a fundamentally different story if you made the Achilles-Briseis relationship the centre of the story. It's always going to have to be a side plot. I also wanted to talk about the necklace. I've forgotten the necklace. Yeah, so there is a necklace in this film a few times. We first see it before they've gone off to Troy. His mother is making him a seashell necklace in a way that kind of references the fact that she's a sea goddess, but like doesn't make that clear. So it was very confusing to me. I was very confused because I was like, I knew there were no gods in this movie. And then she was just like there standing in the sea. And I was like, oh yeah, because she's a sea goddess. And I was like, no, she's just a lady standing in the sea in this film. Ladies can stand at the sea sometimes if they wish. (laughs) (laughs) Thetis gives him the seashell necklace and presumably he goes off to Troy with it. And then we later see him removing it from Patrick Patroclus's dead body and then later on again we see him giving it to Briseis just before he himself dies. So this final moment affirms his connection to Briseis but it also creates this implicit confirmation of a scene in which he similarly gave it to Patroclus and I just thought it was this interesting sort of parallel that the first time the necklace is given it's in a familial context, the last time it's in a romantic context but the middle time which never makes it on screen it's this nebulous (laughs) combination of the two. (laughs) I like this symbolism that you've created which I I actually did not intend. 
yes, that is what I have done. <laughs> it's, it's very good. But, like, yeah, it is interesting that they, like, the creators of this film chose to do that. When, like, they absolutely did not have to do that. There's no necklace in any of the original source material. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's here. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. and they could have just skipped Patroclus having it and been like, oh, yeah, Thetis gives it to Achilles and then Achilles gives it to Briseis and that represents their importance in their relationship. But, like, once again, they've just been... But, yeah. clearly, but clearly in one of the drafts of this script, there was a scene where Achilles gave it to Patroclus. Yeah. And that yeah. got cut, but then they forgot to cut the bit where he takes it off his body. <laughs> and I guess... Or I guess I was wondering if they meant it to be, like, a different necklace and we were just meant to understand that these necklaces were, like, important to their culture or something. But, like, in any way, it's very confusing. And it <laughs> seems, like, kind of gay. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So that's about all I wanted to say about Troy 2004. It's not very good. It's not very gay. Let's move yeah. along. Okay, so with that, we can move on to talking about The Song of Achilles. The Song of Achilles is a 2011 novel by first-time author, classicist, and high school teacher Madeline Miller. Uh, She's since written another Greek mythology-inspired book, Circe, which I have not yet read. Nor have I. Uh, I have read it. Both of these books have been quite well received, with Song of Achilles winning the 2012 Orange Prize for Fiction. That fills me with rage. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I just don't like this book. (laughs) It's it's probably not the worst book to have won awards, though. Oh yeah, there's a lot of very bad award-winning books. In stark contrast to the scope of Peterson's Troy, Song of Achilles follows Achilles and Patroclus from childhood through to their deaths, rather than just depicting their involvement in the Trojan War, and also depicts them as explicitly involved in a romantic and sexual relationship, with this relationship forming the core of the novel. Miller has long been fascinated with the Iliad, and with the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus in particular. She has also entertainingly, at least once, directly addressed Peterson's version, which I thought was fun, Um, saying at a speaking engagement, it was just incredible how they had to make Patroclus a younger cousin of Achilles and Troy. They established a close kinship link between them so that there wouldn't be any possibility of an erotic dimension to Achilles' <laughs> feelings. And they sure did, Madeline. They sure did. I agree, Madeline. Yeah. I agree. I just like the idea that Madeline Miller has also sat down to watch that movie and just been like, well, that's just nonsense. <laughs> so felt, I'm gonna write a book about yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I felt great kinship with her yeah. in that response. On her website, Miller addresses the question of why she depicted them as lovers. She references later Greek texts such as Plato and Aeschylus, like we did, but also points to the Iliad itself, like we did, giving giving the example of how Achilles grieves for Patroclus. She says, quote, that sense of physical devastation spoke deeply to me of a true and total intimacy between the two men. Expressing similar views in an interview with The Guardian, she said, quote, that seems to say something beyond friendship to me. For me, the love story between these two men was the heart of the story and the turning point of the Iliad. I wanted to really honor that. So to reiterate, she's saying that the relationship is the heart of the story and the most natural way to interpret that for her is as a love story. And I think she's basically correct. Yep. I don't really have a lot more to say about that. <laughs> In lieu of, of picking apart this book the way we did Troy, based around the relationship, I think we're going to talk more about how she depicts the characters. And I wanted to start with Patroclus. Once again, I am filled with rage. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So this book is told from Patroclus's first person perspective. I feel a little bit ambivalent about that, largely because of how it restricts the narrative, but I did enjoy the return of Patroclus to a more central place in the story after watching Peterson's Troy. This choice reflects the depth of Miller's interest in the character, so despite its title, the book is focused on Patroclus more than Achilles, and I think that how a reader receives his character will largely determine how they feel about the book. 
Patroclus in the beginning chapters of the book is established as being generally quite weak and inept. He says, quickly I became a disappointment. Small, slight, I was not fast, I was not strong, I could not sing. And Alice, I know you have some things to say about this, so I might just let you take the floor for a second. (laughs) What do you have to say? First off, I'm just very annoyed at the depiction of Patroclus as generally being incompetent and lesser to Achilles in all ways. And I find it very frustrating because that's not how he is portrayed in source material and I know we talked about not like doing a comparison of oh but this isn't canon from the Iliad but like generally Patroclus is seen as being a competent soldier his pretending to be Achilles is the crux of the story and if he can't pass as Achilles the story doesn't make sense I guess I just find it very frustrating that she's made that decision because I cannot comprehend why she's made that decision well it might help a little more if we talk about Patroclus's character arc over the course of the book Mm. of which there is one yeah and which does interact with this dimension of his character But I wanted to say about him, like, pre this character arc, which is for, like, quite a while, I would say, like, quite a decent chunk of the book, that I felt like the initial Patroclus we get is quite an empty character, defined more by what he lacks than by any substance he has individually. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I just didn't think that that was great writing. I would definitely agree. I think that what you're about to get into in terms of the character arc we do get for him, yeah, okay, but I don't even think we really get the seeds of that character Mm. arc in the first part of the book. Yeah. Um, Mm. which I think is a real problem when you then try and give him a role and a function and a character Mm -hmm. later on. So when we see Patroclus at the very, very start of the book, when he's still living in his father's home and not with Achilles, it's clear that his father like does not care about him and does not love him. And so I sort of thought that it might be that his perceived weakness is just a result of him like not being nurtured, but then it doesn't really go away immediately or like start to give way immediately once he moves into Pelly palace which just sounds like a 70s like test game or something (laughs) i was really frustrated by scenes when say like achilles takes him to his lyre lesson and encourages patroclus to play but patroclus is just like no i'll just watch you or they go back to their room and achilles juggles and patroclus's role is just to like toss the balls to him like there's just still a passivity there for so long Mm. and i just wanted it to stop (laughs) i also find with that it makes it very hard for me especially in the earlier half of the book to get invested in achilles and patroclus relationship because Mm. Patroclus is such an empty character that I can't understand like I can't find the relationship convincing because you never kind of see what Patroclus sees in Achilles beyond just being like oh my god he's just so good at everything and you never see what Achilles sees in Patroclus because Patroclus has nothing to his character so I, I did think that in the part where Achilles goes to his dad and he's like, hey, I want Patroclus to be my like companion. And Peleus is like, how come? And he's like, well, he's very surprising. Or he surprises me or something like that. And I was like, tell me more. In what way? Yeah, like, when did that occur? Like, what does he do? Yeah, and the, the found, like, when they first become friends and become close, it's just kind of this random thing where Patroclus stops going to his lessons and Achilles like comes up with an excuse for him. But it's very like, we're never given a reason for why Achilles has started taking this interest in Patroclus. Yeah, I think, uh, funnily enough, to call back to our previous episode, in that episode, I mentioned how I thought that Patroclus didn't really have a character. I kind of made an offhand comment. 
comment about that, and you, um, right went away, off. I would say, went off a bit. Oh, um, I just love him. <laughs> yeah, about how he's very nurturing and caring for the mm. other soldiers, and how you know he's this like competent battlefield physician and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, I just feel like we we very very late in the story we kind of mm. get a bit of that. I still don't think we get enough of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I agree. As we'll get into, but I just yeah, he's not kind or helpful or friendly in the early parts mm. of the book and yeah there are sometimes there are reasons for that like as you said when he's in his father's palace he really isn't given much of an opportunity to showcase any of that but th- it would have been so easy to have more of those kinds of opportunities once he is with Peleus and Achilles mm. and she just chooses not to include yeah. those yeah. opportunities going back to the Iliad I think Patroclus does have character traits in there but he's not like a hugely fleshed out complex character like he's not mm. a lot of the mm. characters in there aren't just because it's in this like ancient epic that isn't a modern day novel mm-hmm. and I think that Miller does have quite a difficult task in taking those little seeds of characters and like fleshing them out into something that feels natural to us today but like that's the task she set for herself <laughs> and I so. think she like Although you said, Jason, that, like, she doesn't do enough of it at the end. Like, she does do a good job of it at points at the end. Like, I know that's one scene where Patroclus is, like, walking around, I think, just in the Greek camp, and he talks about how there's all these different soldiers greeting him that, like, he's got to know from treating them in the medical tent. And, like, you can see he's forming these relationships and that kind of stuff. So, like, I think she does manage to do that then. So, like, she has that understanding of the character, and she has the skill of finding ways to portray that. So why didn't she at the start of the book? So as you've alluded to, Patroclus does of develop his own skills and his own worth outside of his relationship to Achilles. When they go and stay with Chiron the centaur in the forest, he learns healing and forestry and like all kinds of neat things. I like the centaur part. That's yeah. a good section. Yeah, I thought that was Yeah, cool I, I, I made a note in my notes that was basically, they both become a little bit more likable when they're with Chiron. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah I accurate. mean, I, I think I mostly liked it in the way that I like Studio Ghibli movies where it's like, <laughs> oh, this is a fun pastoral landscape. Mm. Um, it is I, I think it is good for their characters I think it could have been shorter. Anyway, once they go to Troy, he becomes a respected healer. And at this point, his martial ineptitude gradually becomes less an essential trait and more of a choice. So Patroclus accidentally murdered a boy in his childhood and so has this disgust for death and for like war in general that Achilles does not initially have. And I think that Achilles' lover being a man who rejects the cultural view of war as something glorious makes sense, even if Miller wants to do it in a way that diverges from the Iliad. I think that's fine. Mm -hmm. But I think it would have worked better if that had been a choice throughout Mm. or if he had been at the beginning as a child a promising or even just like an adequate soldier who had come to reject this because Mm -hmm. of that accidental murder or something like that rather than having always been cut out from that to an extent because of his inherent lack of ability to engage with it and and you can Mm. see that she's trying to do that because Mm. there's the scene where Chiron says that I could teach you to become a competent soldier and Patroclus rejects that yeah but it doesn't feel necessarily and this is my problem with a lot of Mm. the things that Patroclus does in the first half of the novel it doesn't necessarily feel like he's making that choice from a like principled point of view so much as it is 
oh, I just don't really like mm-hmm. it. And it's mm. similarly later on when we get what should be, I feel, this first like triumphant moment for Patroclus when Achilles is taken away from him and then he goes to Peleus and he mm. demands to know where he is. But in that scene, he doesn't come across as assertive. It doesn't come across as like because of his the depth of his affection for Achilles, he is overcoming his kind of social anxiety and his like generally timid nature. It just sort of comes across as... And, and and this is because of the way that the book is plotted. He sort of goes to Peleus and Peleus is just like, oh yeah, this is where he is. <laughs> he doesn't have to make an argument. He doesn't have to mm. overcome anything. He mm. just goes and Peleus is like, yep, he's on this island. Which I just found to be a bit of an anticlimax. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but now I have a new reason why I don't like that scene. <laughs> <laughs> I think the point, like the scene that I think Eli brought up before where um, Achilles is at his lyre lesson and they kind of offer Patroclus to try playing the lyre and he's just like, nah. And it's obviously that he says no because he's like, I won't be very good. Achilles is really good. I just like to watch Achilles be really good at that. To be fair as well, he's also just seen that Achilles has been given his mother's lyre and like obviously there's some emotional stuff going on with that. That's but true. like still. And, but it's not like he then like later shows that he actually does really love music and that he was just awkward in that one situation. Mm. Well, Achilles does play it again more later and he tells him that it's his and that's neat. But it's still like Achilles. Yeah, that's all just centred around stuff that Achilles can do and not like, hey, Patroclus actually does have a lot of love for music and would like to play music as well, but he wasn't comfortable in that one situation. Mm. And now later on, because they're closer in their relationship, he feels comfortable playing in front of him. Wow, amazing, a character <laughs> arc. <laughs> it, well, it made me think as well about that scene really early on in the Iliad where like Achilles is hanging out in his tent, and I think it's just before the embassy of Odysseus mm. and some guys come to see him. He's hanging out there playing the lyre, and it says that like Patroclus was waiting for him to finish, and the way that that gets read by some scholars is that they were playing in relay, and he was waiting for him to finish his part so like oh. Patroclus could jump in on the jams. <laughs> and I thought it would have been really nice. Like I actually kind of did think that that was what she was doing because she has a lot of like subtle hints not only to the Iliad but to like scholarly work around the Iliad today because mm. she's a classicist mm-hmm. um, that she was gonna have it be a failed relay scene where Achilles is like I have played now you play and Patroclus is like no and then later on Achilles was like I play and then Patroclus like jumps in but like no <laughs> She did not do that. (laughs) Yeah, and we mentioned earlier that Madeline Miller has since written a second book, Circe, Mm. which also features a main character who is kind of trapped and timid in their early life with their Mm -hmm. family and then later on has more freedom and develops more as a character. But I would say that she does a much better job the second time around having a character who is timid for reasons that are readily apparent and when she has the opportunity, she breaks out of that and develops as a character very organically and consistently across the course of the novel. And I do really believe that Malin Miller, like, you know, a lot of people's first novel isn't that good. <laughs> it's just how writing a book goes. It's hard. Yeah, um, so yeah. I don't find it hard to believe that she would, like, develop and that she'll produce better novels over time. Yeah, and certainly I don't think this novel is, like, without value. I think it, yeah, I I think it has some really good things about it, and I think it shows a lot of promise. But, I, yeah, I just think that some of the characterization really lets down what she is clearly trying yeah, to yeah, yeah. do, which yeah. I think mm. is the bit where I'm, like, I'm more sympathetic towards her because I can see what she's mm, trying to absolutely. do. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, and I think that if I sat 
down and had a conversation with Madeline Miller and I did like reading interviews with her, her opinions about Achilles and Patroclus, like I agree with them. Mm. I just don't think she necessarily had the best idea of how to get that onto paper and that's a terrible shame. But I think that I am happy to sort of leave talking about Patroclus specifically there for a moment and then talk about Achilles, who was obviously the other major character in this book called The Song of Achilles. <laughs> um, so how do you feel about Achilles in this? Do you feel that there's more substance to him than Patroclus or did you have similar problems with his character? I have similar problems and also different problems in that I have similar problems in the sense that I feel in the first half of the novel, partially because of, as you said, the fact that this is written from Patroclus's point of view. We don't really see into Achilles' head. We don't really get a sense of what he's like. I feel like until they go to Chiron, I didn't really understand at all what he saw in Patroclus. I feel after that point, we do get some idea. But then when we do get some characterization of Achilles, what I found was this kind of leads into my second problem, which is that he kind of comes across as a bit of a himbo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, explain more. <laughs> In that he's he's very innocent mm-hmm. um, in a lot of matters, and even Patroclus, who is not depicted as being particularly worldly, seems like way more worldly than yeah. Achilles in a lot of ways and in a lot of the scenes across the book. And I just found that as the story wore on, the fact that of our two main characters we had one who was depicted as not being particularly competent in anything... <laughs> for a long time and we had another who was very competent at things but not particularly socially apt or particularly eloquent in the way that he spoke or having particularly developed or interesting thoughts meant that there just wasn't much spark to a Mm. lot of the scenes Mm. and you know it wasn't really until you get some of these older characters like Odysseus and Agamemnon and all these people entering the story that I felt like the story really came to life that they had someone mm. to like bounce off of yeah yeah mm. um actually my points that i want to talk about with achilles are also about his sort of innocence i think i kind of have two bullet points here which are essentially achilles is innocent at violence and achilles is innocent at sex so let's start <laughs> with violence <laughs> This, far more than Troy, emphasizes their youth when they go off to war. Interestingly in this, Achilles has never fought another person apart from, like, Patroclus one time, not very seriously, before he goes off to war, and only Patroclus has seen him fight. And I was quite taken aback by that. It's far from what we would assume about Achilles' life before the Trojan War Mm. normally. It does, I think, allow for a few quite effective moments. So we get to see the first time that Achilles witnesses a death when Iphigenia is sacrificed at Aulis, and then there's a moment where he tells Patroclus that his father told him to think of the men he killed as animals. But once the time came, he found that he didn't need to do that because he just didn't think at all. Do you see what I mean about him being a himbo? Okay, I actually (laughs) thought this was good and don't ruin it for me by telling me that it's just because he's a himbo. Um, So Madeline Miller has spoken about how the book and the Iliad itself really resonates with people today because of the depiction of war. And she has said, quote, This is a poem about war and a long war. It's about the questions, are our leaders leading us astray? Can we trust them? Are they selfish? What about the common soldiers and people who are suffering on the ground? So I think all of that is speaking to our cultural moment. We have soldiers who are coming back with PTSD, which is something Homer and the ancients understood intimately, the experience of soldiers and their suffering. And I think that getting to see Achilles go from someone who is just like really good at fighting, but that's an abstract thing to him, to someone who is a seasoned killer is actually really, really interesting and not something that any other adaptation that I've seen of this really does. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought that was neat. I thought it was good. 
However, as with the development of Patroclus's character, I feel like she could have gone in a lot harder with this theme, which brings me to maybe like my biggest problem with it, which is the pacing of this novel is very bad. <laughs> um, and it exacerbates all of the problems I have and it's bad. <laughs> so it is 200 out of 350-ish pages in before they get to Troy and 50 pages later, years have passed and we're at the start of the plot of the Iliad. So they have their like coming of age, I guess, with Chiron, but they're really becoming adult men and going through the bulk of the character arcs that we've discussed for both of them while they're at Troy. And so this is Miller's opportunity to really dig into these characters and to grapple with the ethical questions that she's obviously interested in. And I think some of the most promising passages in the book are in this later section, but she just doesn't give herself the page count to do it justice. I think this is also where Patroclus being the narrator in the first person becomes an issue because she's given herself this Patroclus who will not ever go into battle past like one or two times and a lot of the ethical stuff she gets into is to do with what Achilles does when he's out on raids killing people so we can't ever see it. Mm. Yeah, it's a real problem. Just briefly, yeah, you said it's a full 200 pages before they get to Troy. Um, just to very, very briefly go back to Patroclus, it's, uh, I noted it down, it's 235 <laughs> pages in before Patroclus gets to become a healer. And also, like, I don't have it written down, but 235 out of 350-ish pages, he doesn't live until the end. Yeah. <laughs> he <laughs> dies before that. There's he, a whole section of the book in which he is dead. He does continue to narrate the story. Yeah, I think that's also quite unfortunate. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so it's not like he's like, okay, I got 115 pages in which to really show how good I am. He's got, I don't know, like 70 or something, and then he is gone. Yeah. Let's talk about sex, <laughs> baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, Achilles is like completely oblivious to the existence of women at all seemingly <laughs> patroclus notes the sexual exploitation of the palace serving girls and achilles is like apparently oblivious to this we never hear his opinion on it at least he has a child with Datomea and he only does so because of the manipulations of his mother and seemingly remains almost oblivious to her as like a person at all. And there's absolutely no question of him being attracted to her. This contradicts the source material that Miller is drawing from, which as we've said, isn't inherently a bad thing and serves to create Miller's depiction of them as kind of basically like a monogamous gay couple thoughts. Yeah. I found it interesting. And this is kind of, you know, what I was getting into before, Achilles mm. is very innocent. You know, Patroclus is the one who understands both the, like, political ramifications of what's happening in that situation with Didymea, mm. but also just the kind of human empathy yeah. to mm. actually engage with her. I um, feel like it just really gets to, like, quite a farcical degree that Achilles is... Yeah, like the, the Patroclus kicking Achilles under the table to be like, Hey, answer her question, dude. Yeah. Oh, I hate it. Mm. It's no good. <laughs> I don't know. It's just very weird characterization mm. for me that this person who's gonna, in 20 pages, lead his people into battle. Yeah. Can't carry a conversation over dinner with someone he doesn't want to have sex with. Mm, yeah. mm. I feel like I don't. This is my main problem with the book that I'm mad about. <laughs> okay, I feel like you've said this is my main problem That's with the true. book, like before in this <laughs> conversation, and I do think you only get one after the characterization of Patroclus, which I also hate. This is my major problem with this book: is how Madeline Miller portrays pretty much every female character. Like Thetis has a character, and. I mean, we can talk about whether we like that characterization or not, but at least Thetis is a character. But pretty much every other female character, and I think it's because she's so fixed on displaying that monogamous gay relationship between Achilles and Patroclus, every other female character is like 
actively ignored by the main characters and therefore she really does a disservice to every woman in this book. And I think like you mentioned that Patroclus kind of has empathy and notices the exploitation of the slaves or servants in the Yeah, palace. actually that's a good point. It definitely calls them servant girls. They are slaves. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I regret using that terminology, even though it's the terminology used in the book. They are slaves. They are slaves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned that like Patroclus has human empathy and notices the exploitation of the slaves, but at the same time, they're constantly described as being like dull-eyed and like they're not given any depth at all from like the, the narrative perspective the women are also data Maya in particular but i think it also applies to these slaves are often described as being like childlike and like several times like sort of small timid animals or like prey basically and i guess it happens because she's sort of trying to distance patroclus and achilles from kind of any like i don't know to distance them from close relationships with women to focus on their relationship with each other i don't know why but it makes me very angry i think i have some idea why okay which is that i feel like what she's trying to do is avoid um what we were talking about earlier with the troy movie Mm. where just because there is a woman and a man interacting in the story therefore the audience assumes romance will ensue yeah and I think that she's trying to get across, like, you know, the idea of these girls being like, dull-eyed and that kind of thing. Yeah. I felt that that was very obviously from Patroclus's perspective because he's not interested in women. But why I should am. not wanting to sleep with a woman mean that she's dull-eyed and you can see no humanity in her? Uh, no, and and this is where I, this, this is yeah, this is where I'm going to go back to. I do agree with you yeah. though. I think there was a much better way to do that. I so like I also think that the depiction of women in this is very troubling. I guess I do want to note specifically regarding I don't I don't know if it's something she does repeatedly, but regarding her describing a slave girl as dull eyed, definitely repeatedly. She, Oh, okay. Yep. All right. I remember one like very specific instance when it happens when this girl's being like assaulted while she's serving mm, dinner, mm. and Patroclus notices that specifically as not a just a general character trait of that, but as a reaction of that girl to the repeated sexual mm. assault that she is subjected to in her daily life, mm. and he feels uncomfortable about it. And I yeah. think that like that rescues that a bit but i i do think overall like it, it's a very uncomfortable set of depictions yeah yeah I think-, I think yeah i think she's trying to depict them as dull-eyed in the sense that they are inured to the horrors mm. of what they're undergoing rather yeah. than they're dull-eyed because they're like Dull. not worthy of attention mm. yeah and i think that would have worked if she had had any of those women be characters rather than just you know like i don't think any of these slaves mm. that we're talking about even have names that i recall they might do but like none mm-hmm. of them are characters and if she had one of them be a character for any reason then i think that would have gotten her point across a lot more strongly to be fair i think that that's kind of the inherent difficulties of writing about any specific myth from this time mm. period is that like you are handling a lot and Colleen Miller doesn't really have time for what she's handling from the canon. Yeah. And so to develop a random slave girl into a character for that point is going to be very difficult to do in a way that isn't just kind of like a tokenistic attempt at what you just described. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like it, it is still a problem that you need to grapple with that you're writing this like book that isn't overwhelmingly about the ongoing violence, sexual and otherwise, that's done to all of the people who are enslaved in this community. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's a problem that she grapples with in Mm. her next book because, Mm -hmm. you know, it has a female protagonist but also has a lot of other women Mm. featured Mm. throughout in various forms and in various positions in that society Mm. because 
obviously the story of Cersei features much more prominently the gods themselves, and so you're able to kind of use this Greek myth framework whilst also having women in positions of power without Mm -hmm. being able to be accused of, like, oh, well, you're just pandering to the feminists. Yeah. You know, it's like, Athena just is Athena. Yeah. (laughs) You can't dispute that. Modern feminists did not invent (laughs) Athena. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, certainly in this book, I think it's... uh, you know, not particularly well handled. Mm. And I think also if you're saying she should have fleshed out a slave girl into her character, she does. There's Briseis. Mm. Mm. And I guess I'd like to hear what you think of Briseis. Mm. Do you think that that was done well or do you think that, like, it was an attempt? I think it was an attempt. Okay. And I think this kind of comes back to what you mentioned earlier about when authors dealing with, modern authors dealing with this source material deal with slavery, they create this division between the bad guys who keep slaves and mistreat and abuse their slaves and the good guys who do not do that. And like, we have this thing where like Patroclus and Achilles take in all these women who Mm. would have otherwise become slaves who were abused and so forth. So rather than kind of interrogating what happens to these women who would be enslaved she just takes them out of that situation you know it's okay now because they're with patroclus and achilles so that just isn't happening so we kind of don't really have to confront that i i feel better about this version of that i I agree that it's a problematic trope Mm. but i feel better about this iteration of it than i do about the one in peterson's troy Mm -hmm. because in that movie it's just like this one woman who achilles is attracted to Mm -hmm. and so therefore she's fine whereas at least in song of achilles a it's not it's not because achilles is sexually interested in these women yeah (laughs) that they're being protected and also b you know there's an acknowledgement that it's not just one and Mm. this is like an actual widespread problem yeah um, yeah which is good but you know yeah you're still engaging with that trope there's this point i don't know how i feel about this point but there's this point where patroclus goes to briseis when um they think that the trojans are about to win the war and he's like oh you know like don't worry this is how we'll deal with like protecting you and keeping you safe when the trojans win the war and then he has this moment where he remembers that she's not greek and she won't be like yeah he says like then I remember they're liberators to her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, like, the fact that he's kind of forgotten that and mm. it's portrayed in such a way that he can forget she's an enslaved person because they're at war with her people. The fact that he can forget that for enough of the novel that he can have a moment where he's like, oh, yeah, that's right, I think speaks to how that's not dealt with in as much depth as I would like. Um, I think also, like, in any version of this that does justice to those subjects, you need to have Achilles and Patroclus be fundamentally morally ambiguous characters. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Which this novel kind of hints at allowing like Achilles to be, but not to the extent that I feel would be necessary for a full exploration of that. I do think it does it better than Peterson's Troy. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, I mean, let's not really like a high bar across. Mm-hmm. I think that Patroclus's character is depicted or developed in such a way that I can buy him being a bit more socially conscious than his peers and at least mm. noticing the effect this has on the slave girls in the palace if not you know more than in passing mm. and i also think that it is also a good choice that madeline miller makes to implicate achilles back into that sexual violence by having him being willing for and even planning for agamemnon to rape briseis so as to offend his honor more publicly and obviously that's a weird thing where like obviously i don't want the protagonist of a book i'm reading to be willing for someone to get raped and obviously i don't want one of the main female characters in the book to be raped but like that is the material we're drawing from mm. and it's mm 
mm. grapple with it or don't. So I think that that was a good decision. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that yeah. definitely, you know, that is one of the moments where I feel Patroclus's characterization shines through. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. You know, that was really good. Yeah. I thought it was really good. So that I think brings us to the end of our Song of Achilles discussion. I know a lot of you are going to treat this as the end of the episode and turn it off and unsubscribe. <laughs> That's okay. Bye. <laughs> um, but in all, in all seriousness, you know, I know a lot of people like this is their favorite book and they feel very personally about it. So like, you know, that's fine. You can like this book. Yeah. Probably this wasn't very fun listening. <laughs> but now we're going to instead tread Troy Fall of a City, which is no one's favorite ever. So this will be much easier crap. <laughs> Troy Fall of a City was released by the BBC in 2018. Um, and it is an eight-hour miniseries, so it's able to include a lot of content that the other two don't. But also a lot of random content that they just made up. Yeah, that's true. So there's much more focus on the Trojans in this version. It begins with Paris being cast out of his family as a baby because of the prophecy that he'll destroy Troy. It shows his life as a shepherd and the competition between goddesses that leads to Aphrodite promising him Helen. And then his acceptance back into the royal household. And that's just not something that I've ever like seen depicted before. And I just thought that was neat. Yeah. I um, quite enjoy the gods in this Me too. This me too. Series. I like that it actually like characterizes Paris and gives him both a character arc and relationship arcs. Mm. Again, I've never seen that happen. Mm. Um, it does also include the gods explicitly, which Troy, as we've heard, refuses to do and the song of achilles does very little they do not do a great deal narratively and i think that like your mileage will vary on if you think they look silly or not but i thought they looked really good i like yeah, I, I think that the specific scene that i'm thinking of is the battlefield scene where mm. they are standing amidst yeah. these charging mm. soldiers and blessing them yeah and that was something i never expected to see in an mm. adaptation was that idea that they are present on the battlefield mm intervening on that very small scale yeah, like we yeah. talked about in the previous episode like happens in the Iliad mm. and I thought that was really cool and I thought that was pretty well done and visually worked mm. um, so I was pretty impressed by that yeah, yeah me too I think that they played a really good balance between making them look like visually distinct from the people around them and so forth without making them be like CGI'd in some way or something to make them yeah I don't know, big or whatever. I thought they did <laughs> that really well. So I, I really liked that. Um, also with that scene on the battlefield, I thought that was a good way for them to just literally just redo the list of characters again. Mm. Um, it was kind of almost like doing a little homage to the um, <laughs> catalogue of ships, which never needs to be an adaptation, but which I'm irrationally fond of. Uh, and also just like you've had a lot of people thrown at you. and It's kind of nice to have people be like, that one's Ajax and that one's Aeneas. <laughs> yeah, 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 So I thought that was really good, yeah. Um, um, and yeah, I agree. I really liked Paris uh, in this. I found him, like, quite fun. Oh, cool. As a nice. character. I really liked Paris. I thought it was a bit of a problem that he was, like, way hotter and way <laughs> more compelling than the guy playing Hector. I also just really liked the Trojans being more prominent in this, given that they're almost entirely cut from the Song of Achilles. I don't think that that's, like, an objectively bad decision on Madeline Miller's part and is also, obviously, an inevitable consequence of having it from Patroclus's point of view. But having both the Trojans and the Greeks be, like, characters in the Iliad is something that is very remarked upon and seen as like very notable and it just felt strange for that to be gone it also i think cuts out like a lot of female characters but that's another issue so it was nice to see them like a lot in this version straight after that however while i liked these things about the show and i can see what they're trying to do with like basically all of the decisions they make and i approve of their thinking there the execution of like almost everything and a lot to be desired <laughs> 
specifically, as you mentioned, the problem with the Trojan War is that it's a decade long, and once you've committed to showing the lead up to it and not doing some kind of time jump or something, you have to fill in a lot of time in which nothing is canonically happening for you to lean on. Mm. So to this end, they come up with a lot of plots that aren't very interesting. They add in Helen's accidental treachery hour. They add in some baker OCs and the Greek spy and his doggy that they adopt. <laughs> and then there's also just like a lot of repetitive intra-Trojan drama that I don't care about. Yeah. It is interesting that they did all of that. And yet when they actually get to some of the really important events... I do feel like they feel a little rushed sometimes. Yeah, like what? Mm. Like, I'm sure we're going to get into it, but like the, the framing of Patroclus's death in particular was mm. something that felt very, very weird to me. Mm. Yeah, me too. Mm. Me too. Yeah. I also wanted to mention that they include the Amazons in this, which is pretty neat, or at least it's neat theoretically, but they do very little with them. So it's mostly just kind of like fine. And the reason why I wanted to mention them in particular is because some of the Amazons are gay. Which correctly true. yeah yeah we've yeah. got some more gay amazons yeah this season yeah the expanded universe continues yeah <laughs> unfortunately none of them are like explicitly wonder woman but i guess that's fine <laughs> <laughs> that would be so funny that would have been bad but like that would have been, been quite funny. terrible yeah <laughs> they, i like, like that like you said that would have been bad as though we were seriously considering this as an well, adaptation they could have choice called one of them diana i guess is what we're saying not yeah, as if they would have been like wonder woman <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's some kind of wonder woman <laughs> she is a wondrous woman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that would be great. Yeah. So one of the Amazon warriors is killed, and then Aeneas comes to talk to Penthesilea, who is the Amazon queen, and they talk about how like they've both lost lovers, so it reveals that Penthesilea and the woman who died were lovers. They have like a nice chat about how they've both lost lovers, and Aeneas suggests that like maybe um you and I could get together. And she literally is basically just like, oh no, I'm a lesbian, sorry. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> then she says, that. like, oh no, men and I, that doesn't happen, which is ancient talk for, yeah, no, I'm a lesbian. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I just thought that was pretty neat. Yeah, <laughs> I liked that. it. was good. And then Aeneas is just like, uh-huh, and he walks away. He's yeah. like, oh damn, okay, now the good one. <laughs> oh drat. <laughs> Yeah, and he's like, I don't know, he's like very, obviously has like goodwill towards her the entire yeah. time, yeah. and it's like not it tense nice. at all. He's just like, okie dokie, and then he like leaves. Yeah, and they clearly have a lot of respect for each yeah. other. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah. a good scene. But yeah, like that is kind of it when it comes to the Amazon's gayness. So not like a huge part of the show. Mm -hmm. So now let's talk about Achilles in this, I think. And before we get into discussing the depiction of Achilles' character, which was like a little baffling, I wanted to address the casting of David Gyasi, who is a British actor of Ghanaian descent as Achilles. So he is not the only black actor on the show. Patroclus, Athena, Zeus, Aeneas, Nestor, some of the Amazons also played by black actors, which is great. The showrunners essentially seem to have had like a colorblind approach to casting with writer David Farr saying it is simply a casting decision whoever came and inhabited the spirit of the characters best we decided to cast which cool all nice. those actors do a great job i really like no zeus I'm a big yeah fan i of liked zeus. zeus too i thought he was good i thought all of the gods were really good yeah yeah however there was a considerable amount of racist backlash to the show i guess about like black people daring to exist in a historical thing at all but particularly focused at david yassi 
So we're not going to spend too much time on this because like, obviously that isn't something that needs to be debated or anything. It's just racist. But I did want to mention a few things that people say about why this is like historically inaccurate, just in order to debunk them. So like you can do this if you ever see someone say these things again. There's an online project called Faris through which academics document and refute the ways in which online hate groups appropriate Greco-Roman culture to support their ideologies. Hmm. Um, And it's very, thoroughly addressed and debunked the racist response to BBC Troy. Good on them. Mm, it's good. Like to the extent that they have like sections on their website and it's like anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, racism, BBC Troy. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wow, you had a time with this it's, one. That sucks that they have to have a section for this show. It, yeah. It really does suck. But like I'm glad that this resource exists. Yeah, it does. So like if that is something that you're interested in, I would encourage you to go and read through any of the material on their website. Um, I'll include a link to like these articles in particular but also just their website in general in the sources for this episode which you can find on our website check it out it's really good it's very easy to read it's compiled by academics so like i trust it Mm -hmm. Uh, it's great it's great um but anyway the racist uh arguments against this casting include things like claiming that ancient greece was homogeneously white (laughs) Uh, In actuality, while exact demographic information is obviously hard to come by, it is in close proximity to the Middle East and North Africa, and it is a seafaring community, as are a bunch of other communities in the Mediterranean. So ancient Greece absolutely was more diverse than these reactions would lead you to believe. But I mostly wanted to talk about the myth of the blonde Achilles. (laughs) (laughs) So people will absolutely tell you Achilles is blonde. This is a character trait about him, just as defining as it is about Joris and Lamis. And this is behind like why Brad Pitt is blonde in Troy, for example. Once he got cast, uh, I think it was Wolfgang Peterson, but like someone involved in it met with him and was like, you don't look like Achilles at all. You're not very muscly and your hair is dark. So it's very permeated. And this comes from the word xanthos, which is often translated as blonde. Uh, It's used twice in relation to Achilles' hair in the poem, once when Athena grabs his hair to stop him killing Agamemnon. Would have loved it if that had made it into BBC Troy, but it didn't. That's okay. And once when he cuts a lock of his hair off at Patroclus's funeral. The word xanthos is used to describe things like honey and sunlight, which are yellow, but the word is also used where the colour yellow doesn't make sense as an implication, so it's used in a fragment of Antiphanes to describe the smell of cooking fish. Um, (laughs) I don't know what to do with this information. Yeah, well, ancient Greek colour is something that people are, like, really confused by. I'm about to say, yeah, the wine dark seas. Yeah, see, exactly what I was going to say, the phrase people lose their minds over wine dark sea the ancient homeric scholar aristonicus understood xanthos to uh not indicate color but instead the quality of achilles feelings in those moments his rage at agamemnon his grief over patroclus's death and it indicating sort of like a quality of heightened emotion instead who is this guy who said this he's like a roman era uh, who wrote commentaries on homer oh yeah okay cool in any case, it should also be noted that Menelaus's hair is described as Xanthos 27 times in the Iliad. No one cared that he was played by the brilliant <laughs> actor Jonas Armstrong in BBC Troy, and this is because Jonas Armstrong
strong as white. I'm laughing a little bit because I remember when I was watching this show and I explicitly sent you a message, Eli, that was like, why isn't Menelaus a ranger? And you're like, God damn, you undermined my argument. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just me. Yeah, and that's not <laughs> And I didn't like start an online angry campaign about this. I just sent one Facebook message. Yeah. Um, and this is because this random dedication to the real hair color of a mythological character is nothing to do with the real hair color as mm-hmm. depicted in the Iliad. It's just racism. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to explicitly say that I think he's acted as a, a really good job. Yeah. Uh, I have problems with how his character is portrayed, but they're all down to the script. Um, I thought that David Giassi did like a really good job with the material given to him. I liked him as Achilles. He was a good Achilles. Yep. Yeah, I yep. agree. I yeah. Think, I agree. Yeah. I will say, I, I think um, he also delivered what was probably my favorite line of dialogue mm. in the show. I think it's his final line just before he dies where it's like, this was always a shabby war. We will get into that. Which I really <laughs> enjoyed. No, what does quickly note, like Achilles' hair doesn't matter, but I was once in an Iliad translation class where we were discussing this exact word and the tutor said, you know, they wouldn't mean like blonde like we would think of it. They'd mean like Eli's hair colour. And I was just like, damn, (laughs) it's me. I am Achilles now. Yes. Uh, The listenership of this is not know what my hair colour is. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that clarified nothing clarified for them nothing and it doesn't need to we know you're not blonde that's I'm all we blonde. know yeah <laughs> so let's talk a little bit then about achilles character arc which like david gyasi is trying his best to power through a mediocre script and deliver to us <laughs> um so i mean i guess i first want to say that i feel achilles in this is very much like downgraded as a character and i just don't think that he was on screen enough Mm. And I think they should have taken one of the, like, 12,000 themes about Andromache's pregnancy away and just given a few of them to Achilles. <laughs> or, you know, Hector and Paris again being like, oh, I don't like you. Oh, we're brothers now. Or, like, whatever. Achilles' character arc in this basically takes the plot point about his honor with Briseis, that part of his character, and just, like, runs with it wildly. In most scenes he's in, I would say, there's some line about him caring about whether the war is honourable or not. So in the embassy of Odysseus at all to him, he says, Give me a reason and I'll fight. One that isn't rape or pillage. You show me a higher calling that demands my power. Give me a cause and I'll give you war. Can you? Thought not. Even when Patroclus is killed and Achilles comes to collect his body, I felt that the reaction of the crowd seemed to suggest that he had shamed himself in allowing this to occur, with Hector saying in an accusatory tone, you send another man out in your armour. Jason, I know you had feelings about how Patroclus' death scene was framed. Did you want to contradict me there what was going on no i think your interpretation of how it's presented in terms of there being a degree of shame for achilles in that scene is correct the main problem i have with it is just that it occurs like 50 meters away from achilles which i just found really weird i just felt like it means that the scene happens so quickly that i didn't get that same sense of emotional resonance mm-hmm. and that i didn't get that sense that Achilles thought it would be fine, Mm. you know, and was kind of like, yes, okay, they're returning from the battle Mm. and, you know, we've succeeded and my plan has worked and I am at the peak of my confidence in my righteous, the righteousness of my decisions and then gets torn down by the news that Patroclus is dead. Mm. I think that's Mm. an important moment and I think that it's undercut in this scene because of the way that it's happening just like right there. He talks, I believe he talks in this adaptation, he definitely does in others about how, well, I'm only going to fight at the point at which, you know, the fighting is right at my doorstep, is at my camp. And it is... (laughs) In this adaptation, it's pretty much right there. Yeah, it's interesting having, like, read the Iliad and read some other ancient texts and then, like, watched all of these. Because, frankly, I can't remember, like, what 
which particular one says in which order and stuff like that. Mm, mm. Um, I mean, I, I think that the idea is more like I'll fight when they beg me to mm. and Agamemnon has not. So I think it being on his doorstep is like fine. But I agree that it's a very like rushed sequence and I think like a lot of the things that should be key moments for Achilles' character, they're not emphasised particularly or like emphasised in a way that would actually serve the character arc that they seem to be going for. No, but yeah, I, I, I did find it. A, I did find it an interesting contrast to uh, 2004 Troy. Mm. In that, in 2004 Troy, it's Brad Pitt's Achilles who comes to Hector and is like, takes off his helmet and says, "Now you know who you're fighting." Yeah. Whereas in this, it's Achilles rushes out, sees Patroclus' body, and it's Hector who criticizes him yeah. for for letting someone else wear his armor. And you know, I don't have a problem with that. I just found it was an interesting mm, yeah, that's contrast true. between it is the interesting. two. The entire last sequence that Achilles is involved in is him being tricked into thinking that Priam has dishonoured the ceasefire and therefore dishonouring it himself. And once he's been fatally wounded, he confronts Priam in Paris. And once he learns he's been tricked, he says that line that you liked, Jason, of this was always a shabby war. Mm. Whilst they're definitely like kind of inventing and emphasising things that the source material didn't emphasise and things like that, I don't think that this is bad. Honour is obviously quite important to the character of Achilles. The TV show, I think, turns it from a concern for his personal glory and honour to a broader concern for what is honourable, which kind of translates to what is ethical behaviour mm-hmm. within a certain moral code. And it's an interesting enough adaptation of this character and one that serves the themes that Iliad adaptations tend to grapple with. Like everything, it could have been executed better. If you want to make his character revolve around honour, for example, I think you need to make it a much more huge key point when that honour and his humanity in general fails in his murder of Hector and treatment of Hector's body and then the return of that honour and humanity when he meets with Priam, and I just don't think it really committed to that. Yes, and I want to talk a little bit about that scene where he meets with Priam. I found it interesting the way it was portrayed. Priam is played very, very differently in that scene compared to in, for example, 2004 Troy, believe also in, uh, in Song of Achilles. He feels like much less of a kind of supplicant who's prostrating himself before Achilles and saying, I'm putting myself on your mercy. He's very, like, just kind of stubborn and sassy, and I'm just kind of like, okay, that's an interesting choice. I don't necessarily have thoughts on that necessarily being a bad choice, but I just thought that it was interesting, and particularly in terms of what this means about Achilles regaining his honour. Yeah. I do kind of feel like it would have been a better contrast between Achilles' behaviour and Priam's behaviour if Priam had been like, I'm a proud king, but I am going to Mm. prostrate myself before you. And I almost feel like the scene that we got in the 2004 Troy movie, if you just insert that scene (laughs) with these actors, it would have been better than what we got. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. Anyway, I also wanted to talk about how I feel Odysseus is set up as a foil to Achilles in terms of this whole honor theme. So I also wanted to actually note, first of all, that in this, Joseph Maul plays Odysseus, and in Troy, Sean Bean plays Odysseus. So we have like a 100% conversion rate of like Odysseus actors to Stark brothers in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Odysseus is introduced as being quite reluctant to go off to war and not having any respect for Agamemnon and Menelaus, but once he's dragged into it, he's willing to do what he has to do in order to finish the war and attain his goal of getting home, which, like, oh, honey, (laughs) we've got a big storm coming. (laughs) Um, 
Odysseus as a character is defined by his cleverness and his skill at strategy. He's a favorite of Athena, goddess of wisdom, as we get to see in this version when she blesses him. And his methods are framed in this often in opposition to Achilles and therefore like a lacking in honor in some way. So when Achilles is refusing to return to battle, he says, in the absence of glory, you'll have to rely on your ways, Odysseus. And when he dies, just before he says that line about it being a shabby war, he says, we'll tell Odysseus to him the glory then. And then, like, obviously, the Trojan horse is Odysseus's plan, and the series ends with the Greeks preparing to return home and shows them forcing the Trojan women onto their boats. And during this final sequence, Odysseus has tried to hide Andromache's baby, but when it's discovered, he, in deep resignation, just throws it from the walls of the city. And Andromache curses him, and then the show ends with a shot of his face. I don't have a lot to say about that. I just thought it was an interesting framing of his character to take and one that I don't think is really fully fair to him but like definitely was interesting (laughs) I quite liked Odysseus in all three of these adaptations actually maybe in 2004 Troy just mostly because Sean Bean is a lot of fun (laughs) uh, especially uh, younger hotter Sean Bean Um, (laughs) he's like such a mullet in this yeah but I'm into it okay that's fine But I do feel like of the three, this is the one that does the most interesting thing with Odysseus and making him a thematic foil to Achilles. I feel like that is better than what the other two adaptations do, which is that he becomes the eloquent and witty one, and that's kind of the extent really of the characterization you get, which is a real problem when you're trying to write a compelling and interesting script and dialogue for characters because if one character has to be the witty and eloquent mm. one no one, no else, one else can be no one else gets to be the witty and eloquent one and i think that's a real problem in uh song of achilles um, mm. is the one where i noted this down in particular is that until odysseus enters the story we, i, I kind of mentioned this earlier I feel like until you get a lot of these other characters, the characters of Achilles and Patroclus, because they don't have a huge amount going for them, do fall a bit flat in their conversations. And then once Odysseus enters the story, it's like, wow, the dialogue finally snaps and crackles. <laughs> like, it, it even pops, I might say. <laughs> yes, the, the dialogue becomes rice bubbles. Yeah. Um, I was kind of like, oh, okay, maybe everyone's going to end up like this. But it's like, no, 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 it's just Odysseus. Mm. And yeah, she really does have like three like good character cards to give out. Yeah. Mm. And I think that's a real problem. And it, it happens in the 2004 movie as well, where everyone else kind of speaks in epic cliches. <laughs> and Sean Bean gets to have actual dialogue. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think of the three, BBC Troy, because it's actually engaging with Odysseus, mm. having a role Mm-mm. in the narrative beyond just being the witty one it's able to give achilles in this story he gets to have impassioned arguments Mm. that feel like things that real people would say and i really enjoyed that and i really enjoyed like the scenes of the two of them interacting Mm. in contrast to song of achilles where even after years at war achilles still feels a little bit innocent and not necessarily like comprehending the full machinations of the politics at play Mm. whereas in BBC Troy, he understands the politics at play. He just doesn't want to engage with them because he finds them dishonorable. 
mm. which feels much more meaningful in that it's a choice. Yeah. So yeah, that's my that's my rant about Odysseus. Okay. <laughs> I do think it's a terrible shame that we keep like adapting the prologue to Odysseus's own story and then never adapting the Odyssey. It, it is wild. Sad. It yeah. is wild. I was thinking about how we we haven't really had a modern Odyssey. Odyssey take, yeah. I also feel like the Odyssey. Like we've talked about how like we struggle to adapt the Iliad because things in the Iliad don't necessarily sit with our modern sensibilities. The Odyssey is literally just like this guy is trying to get home and he keeps encountering it's, obstacles. Yeah, like, it's that's... like a fantasy adventure role. Yeah, it's mm. very easy. And we to have adapt. the technology to make like Skylar and Charybdis look good now. Yeah, so why don't we do that? I don't know, like we should. So I wanted to move on from that to talking about Patroclus's character in this. Now Patroclus in this is a very minor character, but also kind of good question mark. <laughs> um, I feel like that's why, like when you said at the start, this is the order we're doing them in, and I was like, that's the order of yeah. like least favorite favorite. I think that's like why I would say yeah. this would be my favorite, because Achilles and Patroclus, I think are done much better as a pair and as characters. Mm. Mm. So Patroclus in this is involved in multiple missions, uh, in attacking Cilicia and sneaking into Troy specifically, and he takes an active part in them. Um, he's also notably kind and gentle in his treatment of Briseis in his response to the desperation of the Myrmidons and during the plague when we also briefly see him in his role as a healer. Mm -hmm. I feel this version balances the attributes of the character, you know, mm. being a soldier but also being a gentle healer in a way that Miller fails to do and Peterson never really attempted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, his relationship with Achilles also isn't minimized. As in Song of Achilles, Achilles and Patroclus are explicitly lovers in this, and I feel like the intimacy of the two characters is conveyed quite well, perhaps largely because of the acting, but nevertheless. I did want to mention again with not quite knowing what the showrunners wanted of me, that although Patroclus's importance to Achilles is clearly recognized by the other Greeks, what the Greeks in general think about this relationship, I didn't feel was clear enough. So when Achilles is refusing to fight, one of the Greeks, Thersites, I think, but like it doesn't matter, says he's too busy scaling his lover boy to scale the city. More importantly, when Patroclus comes to persuade Achilles to fight, it quickly becomes about their relationship to a degree. Now I'm just gonna like read you a bit of the script here, so it's gonna be a bit of like back and forth. <laughs> I guess I could get one of you to act it out with me, but I don't know that we'd enjoy that. <laughs> um, so Achilles says, perhaps you should leave before I forget that I once held a affection for you. And Patroclus replies, it's not affection, it's love, and I'm not afraid of it. And Achilles replies, when my mother dipped me in the river as a child, she did so with a mother's love. She gripped me tightly. Even as she looked to make me invincible, she feared she'd drown me. Love is weakness. And Patroclus says, it doesn't have to be. Fight with me. If not, then fight for me. And that cuts away. And I was just kind of like, what? what is this character interaction yeah, all of a sudden? I definitely felt when Achilles said that line about love is weakness, I was like, that's a whole character arc that you've just kind of pulled out of nowhere in a second. Whereas if love is weakness and Patroclus is being like, no, love doesn't have to be weakness is a thing you want to explore. You've got to really explore that. You can't just chuck it in there when you feel like it once. Yeah. So I, I don't feel like that like fundamentally ruins the minister or anything for me, but it did mm. make me question what exactly they were implying about like their relationship in general and the way it was received. In the previous episode, we talked about the work of psychiatrist Jonathan Shea, 
who has compared the experiences of Vietnam veterans with that of soldiers in the Iliad. In his book, Shea talks about how many of his patients struggle to heal because they haven't been given sufficient space to voice and thereby process their grief. And I was thinking about that and that conversation between Achilles and Patroclus a bunch in the scene where Priam comes for Hector's body. So this scene is generally the one that allows Achilles the opportunity to fully express his grief. And it's unclear, in my opinion, how important it is for him to have that opportunity in this adaptation because we don't know if this is literally the only chance Achilles has to like fully mourn him. Mm, mm. Um, and I also wanted to note regarding that scene that we bury Patroclus like really early in this and I wish that they had done it later and connected it with Hector's funeral as a way of further connecting Priam and Achilles' grief. So I just thought there were some ambiguities there that were like unnecessary. Yeah, I think from my interpretation, what they were trying to do with Achilles in that scene by having him say that love is fear is you then connect that with how Achilles and Patroclus respectively react to Briseis being taken away in terms of Patroclus having a genuine care for Briseis that goes beyond the kind of fleeting moments that they spend together and into caring about her as a person and what happens to her whereas Achilles cares more for his honour and Mm. I feel like that then makes sense that because he thinks of love as fear it's kind of well I have affection for these people but the only thing that I can truly ever focus on is this sense of honour and Mm. a just war. Yeah I think that's like a a, a quite a reasonable take on it and I think it could have worked if like again with so many things that they'd sort of committed to that a bit more and, and done it a bit better so I guess we should talk more about Briseis in yep. general in this. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. First of all, I guess I wanted to note that Achilles takes Briseis as a captive, not because of any like attraction to her, but out of respect for her in this version. He says to her, I'm sorry you lost your home. War is war, city's full, but I didn't bring you here because I wanted a slave. I brought you here because I thought that you deserved to live. And Briseis in this is like quite assertive and tries to fight and briefly takes Patroclus hostage. And I don't like feel that these are bad things to add to her character, but I did feel a little weird about the implication that like this is why Achilles respects her and therefore why he thinks she deserves to live, at least uncriticized as I felt they were in the show. Yeah, yeah, especially because I feel Feel like a lot of the other things Achilles does in his pursuit of honor are criticized and so the idea that this woman is worth saving because she kind of seems to align closer to your ideals of honor mm. but what about all his other women yeah <laughs> the fact that that does go on criticized yeah mm. I agree I think that's a problem and I think it would have been really easy to like have that and then just kind of like shift things a little bit and be like well what about Chryseis Achilles because you don't care about Chryseis until Patroclus gets sick mm. so screw you <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And then I also wanted to talk about the scene <laughs> in episode four when Achilles, Patroclus, and Briseis have a three way on the beach. That's also the first time that we explicitly see that Achilles and Patroclus are in a relationship, I believe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like it's probably the only scene that makes them being like lovers undeniable that's fine i guess but we really don't have much of an inkling of how this relationship has developed Mm. patroclus has tended briseis's wounds she makes him some medicine when he has the plague but that's kind of about it in a review of the show classicist deborah trusty says of the scene 
The threesome on the beach, while sexually liberated and non-traditional, feels forced and disingenuous. After their love scene, or lack thereof, we immediately revert to ancient patriarchal views of women as belongings. Achilles calls her my woman and my girl and refuses to fight unless they can supply him with a cause that will bring honour. He isn't focused on getting Briseis back. Briseis doesn't seem to be a symbol of sincere love and affection, merely a means to sexual gratification. Furthermore, Achilles hasn't had much screen time at this point and won't, so it's hard to feel emotionally attached to him and understand his motivations. Perhaps there is genuine passion there, but we don't see it on the screen. Like, there are like little bits of that quote that I don't quite agree with. Basically just because I think that assigning Achilles any motivation is pretty dubious in some bits of this. <laughs> but it sums up my feelings very mm. well. To an extent, I don't think that this is that different than Peterson's Troy. It sweeps away issues of consent by making Briseis a willing partner. It doesn't seem to actually sanitize Achilles, I guess, given the immediate treatment of her that follows. But ultimately, it's so underdeveloped as to be unclear. Yeah, yeah. and I think, you know, yeah. as you've kind of said, like, we like what characterization we do get patroclus but there's not a huge amount of it in mm. the show and i do feel like maybe there could have been a lot more scope to contrast the way that achilles treats briseis with how patroclus treats her mm. and really develop the idea of what that relationship means to each partner mm. but they didn't devote enough focus to that which is yeah. unfortunate I, I i guess as with a lot of how i feel about this show i feel like they were very ambitious with all the things they tried to do and some of them they pulled off and some of them they didn't mm. Mm. Yeah. i think that's why i find it so frustrating that there are so many little side plots that they just kind of made up because like there are all these things in there that it's like okay this is interesting where are you going with this how are you mm. going to explore this and then it's just like oh no that's gone we've moved on to something else that you didn't need to have so that i think is like enough BBC Troy content uh, <laughs> forever. Um, <laughs> I guess I wanted to just finish with a bit of a brief discussion, not thoroughly comparing the three or anything like that, but talking about our thoughts overall. In terms of the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus, do you feel like there's a clear best one here? You know, Alice, you yes. said you think they're okay. Yeah. <laughs> So for you, it's BBC Troy. Yeah, absolutely. Like, obviously, Troy 2004, that's out of the market. Yeah, like, Troy 2004 is relevant. <laughs> that's not relevant. <laughs> but yeah, and I think I'm just so frustrated in Song of Achilles with how we're given their relationship, but I'm never really given a good reason why they're interested in each other. Or I feel like I'm showing their relationship, but I'm never told why I should actually feel like it would happen. Whereas in BBC Troy, even though I think we've said like perhaps like Achilles and Patroclus both don't get as much screen time as we would have liked, I feel like I really see them interact and like at times grapple with and like talk about their relationship a bit more. And so I feel that it has more depth, even though that's not the one. Song of Achilles is the one which ostensibly like centers their relationship mm -hmm. and is a book about that relationship. Um, what about you, Jason? Yeah, I mean, it's tough because... We're just comparing two very different pieces of media. Mm. Yeah, we're comparing two, though, aren't we? <laughs> Not three. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In that, yeah, Song of Achilles, we, we get a lot more mm. Achilles and Patroclus. But, you know, as you've kind of implied, a lot of it is of fairly low quality in terms of mm. actually meaningfully developing the relationship and dynamic between the two of them. Whereas we don't get enough of it in mm. BBC Troy. And I can therefore see why a lot of people, if you're a fan of the Achilles and Patroclus relationship, you probably still prefer, generally, Song of Achilles mm. over BBC Troy because you can't watch all of BBC Troy and get Achilles and Patroclus all the way through. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a problem if that's what you're invested in in terms of the Iliad and the, surround, the story surrounding that. Mm. But that said, yeah, I think we do get some interesting, meaty 
Hmm. complex emotions and reasons for their relationship to exist and reasons for those two characters to be such good partners for each other Hmm. in BBC Troy that I really enjoyed. You know, and and that's it. It's not like... I, I don't think Song of Achilles is entirely devoid of good and meaningful connections between Achilles and Patroclus. I just think that it comes too little too late. Mm-hmm. In the novel. Mm-hmm. So I guess maybe for like Troy 2025, um, which we've, <laughs> we've signed off on, it's in production. Um, we want maybe some kind of mix of the better parts of both. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah. by like a better director. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I definitely wouldn't mind someone else having a go at a Madeline Miller style version of the story. Mm-hmm. Probably not with Patroclus as the sole narrator, because as we've pointed out, that creates some mechanical problems in the mm-hmm. story where mm-hmm. you're not present at important moments. Mm-hmm. But dealing with what they were like before they got to this war and then dealing with what happens to them over the course of a decade at war, mm-hmm. I think that's really ripe for drama. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And is a valuable reason to make an adaptation mm. right i think that's yeah. something that i like often feel about adaptations is like why are you doing yeah. this but hopefully we'll get that in 2025 yeah <laughs> and I, I do hope that um troy 2025 or like a, a future <laughs> we're speaking it into existence we are, it's real yeah. now <laughs> we are manifesting troy 2025 i i would like that it be a future like on-screen version whether it's a movie or a miniseries or whatever that does focus the story on achilles and patroclus like mm. the iliad obviously no one adapts this story and literally just adapts the Iliad. Like everyone pulls from other material, but like the OG version of the story to me is always the Iliad, which is focused around Achilles character arc. And I really just want like a good on-screen version Mm. that is focused around the character arc of Achilles. And I think that, you know, obviously that's what like Madeline Miller is attempting to do. And I would just like to see that done justice. So like, Mm. let's all just cross our fingers (laughs) for a 2025, (laughs) make it trend, baby. I I also have like one final question for you about Troy 2025 (laughs) Um, or for modern remakes in general, which is, do you think that Achilles and Patroclus have to be explicitly gay in a modern remake? Or do you think it can be done respectfully without that being the case? I think that, like, I have to separate here my personal biases and, like, a more general opinion. Like, personally, if I saw an adaptation where they weren't gay, I'd be mad. Okay. But that's partly because that's what I'd be looking for in an adaptation as a queer person. Whereas I do think there are angles you could take. And we talked in our last episode about Achilles and Patroclus about Jonathan Shea and how his research found that, like, looking at Achilles and Patroclus' relationship was a really good way for soldiers to kind of process the relationships they'd had with fellow soldiers, which may not have been queer and which he explicitly denied could be queer but you know that's a different problem i don't think um, he said they couldn't be queer he just said that they definitely weren't queer and anyone he'd ever talked to but yeah anyway yeah. and yeah so i think like for those people those people would probably really like to see an adaptation that kind of explored that as a more kind of brothers in arms like really 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 close relationship forged in a war and what that looks like so i think that that adaptation would be valuable for them it may not be valuable for me but yeah i don't think there would be anything wrong with an adaptation that really delved into 
that angle, for example. Yeah, I think that I would be okay with a theoretical adaptation. I have no idea how this would ever happen. Like, mm. I have no idea how someone would make this and so thoroughly not commit to either it being gay or it not being gay mm. that you end up with a version where they are very, like, homoromantic and they have this very intense bond that is clearly, as we discussed in our episode about the Iliad, much tighter and more meaningful to them than their bonds with any of the other soldiers, mm. but isn't explicitly, mm. like, a sexual relationship. Yeah. I don't think I would necessarily have a problem with that. So I guess what you're talking about there is, like, a really direct adaptation of what we see in the Iliad yeah like the Iliad isn't explicitly gay so why should we say that an adaptation has to be explicitly gay yeah and I I think that I actually come down more on the side of no it it does have to be gay than the two of you Mm. I theoretically agree with you Jason and I I guess with you as well Mm. Alice to be clear (laughs) I guess but like in explicitly with what Jason just said and with the spirit of what you both said (laughs) um in that like as someone who wants a, a really like pure Iliad adaptation like theoretically yeah if someone did it as on saying on page for was an oral poem what seems weird but you know Mm. on page off the liar whatever (laughs) um theoretically I'm fine with that but I think that because we're not playing that to the culture that created it Mm. we're playing it to the culture that exists now there is no way for it to be fundamentally ambiguous without Mm. it really just being queer baiting yeah you know it it almost certainly just cannot achieve that neutrality yeah Um, and i also don't think that adding in explicit queerness takes away anything that that adaptation would otherwise be Mm. so i think that it basically fundamentally yes it does have to be gay and i think yeah the reason why i think ultimately i do Mm. fall down on your side yeah if i was forced to pick a side Mm. in this argument that we have created yes um (laughs) which is that i think a creator who could do justice to the closest of that relationship Mm. is probably going to be a creator who is going to be like you know what i I think the relation i think they should just be gay you know i think a creator who has that level of empathy for close male-male relationships Mm. and is willing to depict the level of intimacy that I would want Mm. from an Achilles Patroclus relationship, regardless of how sexual it is, Mm. I think they're going to be someone who's going to be fairly sympathetic to the idea that they should just be gay. And, Mm. you know, given that that's probably what I would prefer anyway. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's what we're going to get. Brian Fuller, Mm. 2025, give us a call. (laughs) Oh my god, yes, exactly. When, when you're done with the Anne Rice TV show, I know you quit, but they'll take you back. It's fine. <laughs> Give us a call, 2025. It's on. Yeah. And, you know, I think anyone who's making it in a way that's not explicitly gay, probably also someone who is not going to make it the level of intense um, yeah. emotional mm. bond between two men that I would want from that mm. adaptation. And probably someone like Wolfgang Peterson and David Benioff who is going to emphasize Achilles' connection with Perseus, for example, or mm. someone like that more. Yeah. And so, yeah, it does have to be gay. It has to be gay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I look forward to revisiting this in 2025, but for now, we've been Queer as Fiction. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Jason. If you enjoy this episode, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. If you would like to listen to more of our episodes, we're on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or wherever good podcasts are found. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so by buying our merch on Redbubble or by pledging a monthly donation on Patreon. 
Or if you just wanted to say to any of your queer or non-queer friends, hey, queer as fact, um, <laughs> that would also be very, very much appreciated. If you do listen to us on Apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate it if you would leave us a review and a rating out of five stars, as that really helps us to reach a wider audience. You can also visit our handy dandy new website <laughs> that will have the sources for this episode and slowly over time for all of our previous episodes at queerisfact.com. We would like to respectfully acknowledge the Yalakut Willem clan of the Boomerang. We pay our respect to their elders, both past and present, and we acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast was recorded. We'll be back on September 1st when Alice will be telling us about American blues singer Gladys Bentley. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you then.